the general idea is that you're eating when you're active and when you're awake. And sometimes when you do these 12 to 8 things and you might be someone who's up and going at 6 a.m., that's where you really try to see some negative effects. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hey friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today I sit down with Emily Manugian, PhD, and Courtney Peterson, PhD, to talk about time-restricted eating, a form of fasting where you typically eat within a 6-10 to hour eating window, as opposed to eating over 12-15 to hours, as the average person tends to today. Both Emily and Courtney are scientists on the ground, actively conducting research with human subjects, looking at how meal timing affects our health. Given the media headlines over the past few weeks following a brand new trial out of China, this is a very timely conversation. We know that calorie restriction and weight loss can improve health, and we know that time-restricted eating can promote weight loss, but does eating in a smaller window offer any inherent metabolic benefits beyond weight loss? Some believe it doesn't, others believe it does. Today we get into the details of this in what I believe is a really illuminating conversation with two legitimate experts from this field of science. Please enjoy the episode and I'll catch you on the other side where I'll leave you with a few of my own key takeaways from this conversation. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, 
but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Peterson, Dr. Manugi, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I thought it might be nice here at the beginning just to hear your thoughts on TRE, time-restricted eating, being in the media over the last few weeks, being scientists that are studying this area of nutrition science. How does it feel to see mainstream media writing about time-restricted eating? Is it is it exciting for you to see whether it's good or, or bad things that they're saying? Yeah, I think it, it is exciting to see it uh, kind of going out into the real world. We put all this work in in this kind of academic bubble. And so it's great when it gets out there and can be put to use. Um, however, it is quite concerning when we see it being oversimplified and sending the wrong message because then it's kind of counterintuitive to everything that we're, we're you know, trying to do and trying to get out to people. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, and I'll say from my perspective, uh, when we first started doing intermittent fasting research a decade ago, you know, it wasn't really on the public radar. Most people had never heard of intermittent fasting. So one of the big gratifying things for me is now almost everyone you talk to knows about it now. So fasting and intermittent fasting have become mainstream, which I think is huge. Mm -hmm. And we'll come to some of the definitions in a moment, TRE, TRF, uh, fasting, and, and just clarify a few things there. But I thought I would ask a, a kind of simple question here at the at the top to perhaps direct this conversation. Right now, there seems to be a debate out there between scientists, between people uh, in, in the general public about the inherent benefits of fasting independent of weight loss. And you'll see one side folks saying that whether it's fasting or, or tracking the energy in your food, all that matters is the weight loss component. And the New York Times article this week included a quote from Ethan Weiss, who he's been on, on the show previously. We were talking about cardiovascular disease. And he said that there is no benefit to eating in a narrow window, which essentially saying that, you know, if you eat 1,800 calories over, say, 14 hours, versus 1,800 calories over eight hours, for example, there's not going to be a material difference with regards to your health. And then on the other side, plenty of, plenty of scientists, uh, including yourselves, believe that when we eat does matter. So my question to you, and I realize that this is probably quite nuanced, <laughs> but I'm hoping for a relatively short answer at this stage and then we can unpack things. Do you think the amount of hours in which we consume our food each day matters in a material way to our health? Or based on some of these recent studies with humans, are you of the view that restricted eating, time-restricted eating appears to be mostly driven by weight loss, the benefits of it? Yeah. So... 
We're up to maybe about 80 or 90 clinical trials on various forms of intermittent fasting, about 50 on time-restricted eating. And by and large, the results are mixed. They're about split down the middle, 50-50. About 50% of the studies find a weight loss benefit for intermittent fasting. The other half don't. But there are plenty of studies, I would say now, that find benefits independent of how many calories you eat. So, and this dates back actually to about 2013 when some of the first studies, large-scale long-term studies were done. And we've done work in my lab where we found that even if we feed participants the same number of calories, if they have a longer fasting period each day, they actually have better insulin sensitivity, lower blood pressure levels, and lower levels of oxidative stress. So I think there's enough robust evidence. It's just the evidence is mixed, and we can delve into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think where a lot of the confusion comes in is also the target population that you're doing this study within. And so these recent papers that came out and the paper that the New York Times article was based on was looking specifically at individuals that were overweight but were otherwise healthy. Um, And even in that trial, they saw no adverse effects of time-restricted eating, which some people bring up as a concern, um, but it was paired with caloric restriction. I think you see somewhat of a ceiling effect there. Um, But I would agree, even in the absence of weight loss or maybe in conjunction with weight loss, there seems to be very large benefits to cardiometabolic health, especially in those that are already at risk for those factors. So already have elevated blood pressure, you Mm -hmm. see blood pressure come down, things like that. But if you have a healthy population and there's nowhere for that to move, you're not going to see that change there. Yeah. And the recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine involved individuals who are about 30 years old on average. That's really young. Mm -hmm. Most studies are working in middle-aged adults who already have elevated risk factors. So this study was unusual in that regard. Okay, well, we'll we'll dig into that study a little further as we move through this conversation. Perhaps now is a good time to make sense of some of this terminology that we're throwing around here. Time-restricted eating, uh, often uh, also time-restricted feeding is used depending on the type of study. We hear intermittent fasting, we hear about fasting. Can we kind of define some of these terms so that as we're progressing through the conversation, things are making a little bit more sense. Yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at it, Uh, Courtney, if you have any corrections, please, Um, because there's some debate in that. Um, Intermittent fasting is a general term for saying you're having periods where you're having either zero calories except for water or limited calories within a day. And the two most common forms of that are alternate day fasting and 5-2 fasting. Some people also consider time-restricted eating a form of intermittent fasting, and that can be also called a 16-8 diet. Um, But time-restricted eating in general is where you consume all calories, really anything that isn't water, to a 6 to 12, usually 6 to 10-hour eating interval. And the rest of that time, you are only consuming water, and it's a consistent daily eating window. This doesn't move around. Um, time-restricted feeding was originally termed in the, uh, basic, uh, clinical, not clinical, but the basic trials done in animals. Um, and when it switched to clinical trials, humans really don't like being told that they feed. So the term got switched to eating. So, uh, some people still use TRF when referring to clinical trials. Um, but at least in our work, we, we switched all of our clinical work to refer to as TRE. Yeah, and there's a little bit of, of debate on what's the minimum duration of hours and number of hours you need to be practicing fasting for something to constitute intermittent fasting. And I would say most people these days say, say it's at least uh, 12 to 14 hours mm-hmm. of fasting. 
And then something else that comes up in the literature and no doubt will come up in this conversation is this idea of early time-restricted eating versus later time-restricted eating. Can Courtney, perhaps you could help us understand the differences between those? Sure, absolutely. So when you're practicing time-restricted eating, you're eating in a shorter time period each day. And you can do that by either eating breakfast later in the day and or dinner earlier in the day. Um, And what's really interesting is there's been research out of Israel showing that eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper actually improves weight loss, blood sugar control, lowers your appetite, and also actually even improves fertility. So really impressive results. So there's been this sort of discussion or debate in the scientific community. Can you get the same benefits of time-restricted eating regardless of the time of day of your eating window? Um, And so we're starting to see research on that topic, but we don't know the answer yet. So one of the big things that's been tested is, you know, um, time-restricted eating by skipping breakfast. So the study you mentioned with Ethan Weiss, they actually compared practicing time-restricted eating by skipping breakfast with three meals a day. So the time-restricted eating group actually ate a little bit later in the day. Now, they didn't see positive results in that study, but there are also other studies that find benefits even if you practice time-restricted eating by eating later in the day. Yeah, and there, there are some groups in Australia as well that did both early and delayed eating within the same group and saw pretty much the same results. There were minor differences in the early group. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other confounds here is all of the trials that have done that have not been relative to an individual schedule. So they've been a set like clock hour in the day, which doesn't take into account when someone is waking up, when someone is going to sleep. Um, and it you know, it kind of depends, like some trials require that eating window to be a set 10 hours or eight hours for everyone in the trial, regardless of their schedule. Um, Whereas others allow you to pick a schedule that works for you. And so what we've kind of seen when we allow participants to choose their own eating window, that it's not a matter of skipping any meals. It's just a matter of maybe delaying breakfast by an hour and advancing uh, dinner by a couple of hours rather than doing a full skip to some extreme that they wouldn't be able to stick to long term. Okay, let's let's put a pin in that Israel uh, study that you mentioned there, Courtney. Was that the the work of was it Jacobowitz? Did I pronounce that correctly? That's correct, Daniela Jacobowitz. Yeah, let's let's come back to that because I think there's some interesting things within that to kind of uh, flesh out a, a little bit. But as as we're kind of just mm-hmm. moving into TRE here, uh, I'm interested before we get into some of the details of the the human studies. I'm interested in just the area of of science in general that kind of paved the way for all of these studies that we're now seeing. There seems like there's a bounty of of human-based studies looking at TRE, particularly in the last five years. And there's a whole lot of research groups. You mentioned there research groups in Australia. There's both of your groups. Where did all of this come from and, and why does this seem to be uh, a kind of very interesting type of fasting compared to some of the the other fasting protocols that were perhaps a little bit more popular five, 10 years ago? Yeah, so it's actually rose in two different areas and I'll let Emily speak to the chronobiological angle. So I'll speak to the kind of intermittent fasting, uh, more of the intermittent fasting communities angle and metabol- metabolism angle. So actually one of the studies that really we can trace the modern um, resurgence of interest in intermittent fasting too was a study out of Mark Matson's lab in 2003. And it was actually ba- based on a bet with him and his postdoc, Mike Anson. 
And they had been doing these uh, lifespan studies with calorie restriction. And we know calorie restriction or reducing your calories by a significant amount extends lifespan. And so they were having a debate about whether the benefits of calorie restriction were due to the fact that the animals, by necessity, were eating in a shorter time period each day and had a longer fasting duration, or whether it was because they were eating fewer calories. Uh, And so they put this to the test. They did a study in rodents. And um, they compared intermittent fasting, in this case, it was an alternate day fasting program, to calorie restriction. And interestingly enough, they found that the alternate day fasting group actually did better than the calorie restriction group, uh, even when matched for calories. And so they had lower glucose and insulin levels, and the neurons were more stress resistant. They were better able to uh, survive under external uh, stressors. And since then, at least from in the metabolic community, there's been a huge uh, uh, resurgence of interest in just studying intermittent fasting and understanding the mechanisms that may have these uh, benefits for lifespan and other aspects of health. Is, is that also one of the explanations for why those two large studies looking at primates saw differences in, in outcomes uh, possibly explained by the feeding patterns? I think I've heard you speak about that before. Yeah, absolutely. So there were two, just to give the audience a sense, so there are two large studies done in uh, monkeys where they were trying to see if calorie restriction extended lifespan. And the two different studies got completely opposite results. One study found that there was absolutely no uh, benefit for extending lifespan and the other found a benefit. And interestingly enough, the group that found a benefit only ate once per day and the group that found no benefit had the monkeys eat twice per day. So it may have just been the timing of when the monkeys were eating. And so actually there's another research group uh, that went back and kind of put this to the test. So they kind of did a reverse experiment. They said, let's go figure out why these two primate studies got different results. And so they ran the study trying to mimic the diets of the two different uh, groups that got conflicting results and playing around with parameters, the healthfulness of the diet versus the time of day. And they found that it had at least in, in uh, the rodents, there was actually no benefit of eating a healthier diet um, in terms of lifespan extension. And instead, they found at least 40% of the life-extending benefits of calorie restriction are actually, in fact, due to time-restricted eating. So huge finding in the field. Okay. And so these proposed benefits of eating less frequently or eating within a smaller eating window then tie back to our circadian rhythms and nurturing those. Is that is that right, Emily? Yeah, so I think it's that. I think it's also that you're probably having an increasing ketone production. And so you're changing the way cells are functioning. Um, so there's kind of two things that are coming in there. Um, and if you go, if you look more at some of the intermittent fasting studies, like alternate day fasting, you're probably not optimizing a circadian uh, rhythm in that pattern, right? If you're not having this consistent daily feeding cue. And so I think there really are two components to it. One is just that you're getting longer durations of fasting. And then the second component um, is this circadian component where you're really kind of working with your body um, at many different levels. Um, and that kind of ties into what I think Courtney was alluding to is the other way that the field got to this, um, which started in rodents who were fed a high fat diet um, and everyone, you know, it's a kind of a common model, uh, it's called diet induced obesity. You feed rodents a high fat diet and they gain weight. Um, but was also observed was that they also change the timing of when they eat, when they're given a high fat diet. So my son, regular chow will mainly eat during the night when they're active because they're nocturnal. 
But when you give them a high fat diet, they actually start to eat more calories during the day as well. So rather than only eating at night, they're eating across the day. So the very simple experiment was to say, well, what if they eat that same high fat diet, but they're only allowed to eat it when they normally would eat. And when you do that, they don't gain weight. Mm. They stay lean. They don't develop fatty liver like they do when they, they're allowed to eat whenever they want. Um, and these were really very robust results. Um, and then this was replicated many times um, in many different labs and has shown benefits for a variety of different diseases and, and kind of general health. And is that... And so then that... Is that independent yeah. of 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 weight loss of calories? So in those two scenarios, whether you're feeding the mice uh, at times when they shouldn't be eating versus feeding them when they should be eating, are you seeing different outcomes independent of calories being consumed? Yes, it's completely independent of calories. So they're the exact same number of calories. Um, and that's why in the rodent studies, you don't see it shorter than eight hours because if you give them an eating window shorter than eight hours, they can't eat the same number of calories as the group that can eat whenever they want. So if you give them somewhere between eight and nine hours, they'll still consume the same total amount of calories, but they won't gain weight doing it. So in that regard, it's, you know, very strong evidence for calorie is not a calorie. Um, you know, at any time of day, it does matter when you eat it. Um, and in a lot of the human trials, it's, it's hard to discern that because when you put a human on time restricted eating, they might eat less calories, um, which is why it's so great that we have some work done from Courtney's lab where she does control everything that they eat. And so she can say they ate the exact same food and she's still seeing those benefits just by changing when they get it. So I know that, Emily, you've been on the show before and, and you explained our circadian rhythms in a lot of detail, but I think it will be important for us to kind of trace back over some of that. So when, when you're saying that eating at different times of the day can affect our health differently and this relates back to circadian biology can you break that down for us go right back to what our circadian rhythms are this idea of a central clock peripheral clocks and how this kind of all ties together with meal timing yeah i'll try to keep it short <laughs> so ask more follow-ups i'll really try to keep this one short because there's a lot we could go into um, the circadian system is really an anticipatory anticipatory system in your body that prepares your body to do whatever it would need to do. So it's going to help your digestive system kind of shut down and break down calories that you already have when you're sleeping. So you can fuel yourself when it expects you to fast. It's going to predict when it should have a cortisol spike to help, help you wake up. It's going to predict when your heart rate needs to be lower or your muscle strength needs to be stronger. You are functionally a different person at different times of day from every level, from behavior um, you know, molecular structure, like anything that you would get measured at a doctor's office pretty much changes at different times of day, you know, hormone release, anything like that. Um, and we don't, you know, we have to take in cues from our environment. We all have about a 24 hour pattern of how all of these processes work to keep, you know, everything in the right place at the right time. But we coordinate these with the, with the environment and the two main cues that we get are light and food. So light is going to be the biggest cue to talk to this clock in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is just a geographical term that sounds very complicated. Um, it's just where it's located. But that part of your brain will integrate light signals. It'll help control your uh, sleep-wake patterns, and it kind of talks to all the other clocks throughout your body. Um, and when I say clocks throughout your body, pretty much every cell in your body has a clock. Um, but when you eat, actually directly affects each of those individual clocks directly because nutrition availability directly signals uh, the cells to say what time of day it is. 
So if you're eating at the same time every day and you're fasting at the same time every day, your body can predict that. It can have enzymes ready to digest things. It can help coordinate other things that are going on within the cell because food availability is a very strong cue to tell the cell what time of day it is. Whereas if you're eating at inoptimal times, you know, when your body wouldn't expect it, say the middle of the night, one, your insulin secretion is shut down. So you can't process your glucose properly Two, you're telling your body it's a different time of day. It may try to shift uh, those clocks directly. Um, like there's many different things that can kind of be um, kind of compromised as how your body would function just by when you're actually eating that food. So I'm just thinking about this and, and just throwing this out, out loud, but let's say it's 11 p.m. at night and it's dark. My central clock is is re- detecting that or being regulated by that uh, change in light from light to, to darkness and anticipating that I'm about to go into a state of rest. But then let's say I go and eat a meal. Is it my... Is it the peripheral clocks that are then becoming disrupted? They're thinking that it's still time to be active and digesting whilst the central clock is saying, hey, it's time to rest and relax. And so you get kind of uh, a sort of uh, a loss of alignment between those two clocks. It's a, Yeah, it's a little bit like that. And it's also the, sorry, it's a little bit that, Um, I mean, eating is a stimulation cue anyway. It's an arousal cue in its own regard. Like if you're driving late at night and you get tired, the first thing you do is start snacking and it'll help you wake up. So eating at the wrong time kind of sends a cue to your your whole body that it's it's the wrong time. Um, But like things like when you talk about it's getting dark, well, one of the things that happens at night when it's getting dark is melatonin is secreted. Melatonin directly um, inhibits insulin secretion. So say you have a milkshake in the middle of the night well, now your body can't process that glucose. You might get a really high spike in blood glucose and those kinds of things that are happening perpetually over and over again can lead to things like prediabetes or diabetes. Yeah. And the way you can kind of think about the misalign- these misalignments between the clock is a really simple level. So, you know, if your central clock says it's dark outside, it's saying, okay, let's slow metabolism down. Meanwhile, you're eating, so your peripheral clocks are like, let's pick it up. So it's effectively like you get conflicting signals mm-hmm. and your metabolism is confused. So you get all kinds of problems in your metabolism. Mm-hmm. And when you said a calorie is not a calorie earlier, that's a, that's a statement that I know ruffles a lot of feathers. Um, and I just want to clarify. So, so you're, you're not saying that the unit of energy is, is different what you're saying is at different times of the day, our body is utilizing that energy differently. Is that right? Yeah. So you're going to process it differently. How it's going to affect your system is different. So like, even if say you had a lot of lights on and you're skewed and your melatonin wasn't high for whatever reason, um, you're still sending a cue to your circadian clocks to say that it's a certain time of day, right? Like there's a lot of different pathways and we don't have enough time or detail to go into all of them, but there are dozens of molecular pathways that are directly affected by, you know, gaining, you know, by nutrient detection um, and that are affected by the circadian clock. And most of them are affected by both, like these work hand in hand. And so when you give this kind of conflicting cue, it throws the system off. And if you do it once, you know, the system's pretty robust. You don't, kind of phase shift overnight, you don't, you know, your body doesn't say, oh, I got this at midnight. So now this is now 6 p.m. and I'm going to shift six hours in one day. Like it doesn't do that. But when you have these erratic cues, like some days I start eating at 
6 a.m. And some days I start eating at 11. And some days I end eating at midnight. Some days I end eating at five. Like your body has no idea what time it is anymore. And those rhythms over time get completely dampened. And so all of those processes are not able able to work properly. And so you're really just kind of compromising the overall Mm. system. So today, are you of the view that this, this kind of chronic circadian disruption and I've heard you use that terminology before as opposed to, say, acute circadian disruption, which people experience when they fly to the other side of the world. Are you of the view that this is a, an integral sort of contributing factor to, to chronic disease that we see today? And, and to take that a step further, if you look back, let's say, 100, 200, 300 years with whatever data we have access to, have we seen a, a change in our our meal timing uh, over the years. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that that is definitely a kind of a underlying problem that we become very ignorant to. And when we had kind of the industrial revolution and and around the clock ability to work and consume food and all of these things that we didn't have hundreds of years ago, we have started to kind of abuse the system that we had you know, we didn't know we were doing, we just kind of thought, oh, this is available, I can do it now. Um, And we didn't realize how much we were hurting ourselves. Um, So I I do think that's kind of a chronic overlying problem. Um, And I I think, yeah, I I think that's how I would say it. I think chronic circadian disruption is a big contributor to a lot of chronic diseases, um, whatever they may be. Uh, And the WHO now now classifies night shift work as a likely carcinogen, right? So that goes to show you how, how good the evidence is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so the this these animal studies are performed and this hypothesis gets established that shortening the eating window is potentially beneficial to, to human health and the benefits partly via chronobiology may be independent of weight loss. And, and so that sort of paves the way to say, hey, let's go and test this in, in human subjects and, and ask a few questions and see what we find. Walk me through the kind of history there with regards to the early human studies that we saw with, with time-restricted eating. And, and then, Courtney, I know that you alluded to a paper that I think you did with Catherine Sutton, which, if I'm correct, was the first study that looked at, at controlling for, for weight loss and trying to tease out if there are any independent benefits to time-restricted eating over and above losing weight. Yeah, well, really, I can, we can trace a lot of the interest in time-restricted eating back to the 2012 paper out of uh, Sachin Panda's lab at the Salk Institute that really started uh, the field um, of, of uh, um, focus on time-restricted eating. And very shortly afterwards, Sachin's group also did a small study um, in, I think it was eight individuals who were overweight. It's a year-long study, and they had them shorten their eating window by about four hours, and they found that they slept better, they lost more weight, they lost about 3% of their body weight, um, and they ate less as well. And my lab back in 2012, we saw some of the data out of Session Panda's lab, and I'd also been inspired by some of the studies that Mark Matson had done. And I thought, this is fantastic, we should try this in humans. So we kind of proceeded in parallel. And I was in particular interested in what happens if you combine time-restricted eating with eating early in the day in alignment with these circadian rhythms in metabolism. And I was interested in the question, what's the maximal benefit that we can get with meal timing, right? If we optimize all aspects of meal timing. 
And so we started off by doing a study that was looking at, are there any intrinsic benefits to intermittent fasting that are independent of weight loss? So independent of whether you lose weight and then exactly what you're eating. So we did what's called a controlled feeding study. Um, and this is where you feed participants um, all the food that they plan to eat and you match the amount of food that they eat across groups. So that way, you know, if there's any difference between groups, it's just due to the time of day they eat, uh, not to the food itself. And so we did a study, we recruited eight men with prediabetes and um, for five weeks at a time, they either ate over a schedule mimicking what the median American does. So they were eating over about a 12 hour period. Um, or we had them try eating all their food over a six hour period. And they started breakfast at the same time in both groups. So one group, control group was fasting for 12 hours a day. And the time restricted eating group was fasting for 18 hours a day. So it's a pretty big difference, six hour difference in the fasting duration. And after five weeks, we measured their blood sugar control, blood pressure and cardiovascular disease respecters. And we found that the men had better, lower insulin levels and better insulin sensitivity. Um, so insulin sensitivity is kind of your body's ability to process the sugar in your bloodstream and move it into your cells. So they had better insulin sensitivity um, than, the group, than when they ate over a 12-hour period. And not only that, but their beta cells and their pancreas, these are the special cells that produce insulin, were actually more responsive to glucose in their bloodstream. So that's an important thing, too, because it shows that, you know, glucose metabolism is basically working better in the body. And in that study, we actually found a pretty large drop in their blood pressure. Time-restricted eating lowered their blood pressure by about 10 points, which honestly to us was pretty shocking. We didn't expect such a large benefit because none of our participants in the study had hypertension. Um, so it was a pretty large drop in blood pressure. And then we found also less oxidative stress in their body. So we looked at something called 8-isoprostane. Which is, which is a measure of sort of how much molecular damage there is to fat in the body. And so, for instance, we know in cardiovascular disease, oxidized fat builds up in your blood vessels, and that actually leads to narrowing and, and stiffening of the blood vessels. And we actually found less levels of, uh, of, of ox these oxidized uh, uh, byproducts. So, um, and so we found a bunch of different benefits. Now, we didn't find any benefits in our particular study for cholesterol, um, so we don't think that any benefits we see, at least we don't think, my group doesn't think that any benefits for cholesterol are independent of weight loss. We think mm -hmm. those benefits are probably driven by weight loss. Um, but we were able to show that there are some intrinsic benefits to intermittent fasting that are independent of, you know, whether you're losing mm -hmm. weight or not. I think you bring up a, a really good point here. Sometimes, particularly in mainstream media, there's this idea of an intervention either works or it doesn't work. Uh, but there mm -hmm. is so much nuance. What what population are we looking at? Uh, what are we comparing to? So in this study, mm -hmm. if I've heard yep. correctly, there's quite a big exposure difference in terms of the Correct. the two groups and how long they're fasting for, which is important because as we come to some of these other newer Correct. studies, that contrast doesn't exist. And Correct. just to kind of remind the listeners, that's not something that's specific to this area of nutrition science, it exists everywhere across the board. If you look at a particular food, for example, and you're looking at intake of that and how it affects health outcomes, if there's insufficient contrast between the two groups you're comparing, you may not see a difference. So it's, it's nothing new there, but it's important to kind of dig into the study to be able to help explain things. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, 
the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. The other thing there that that you mentioned was the improvement in insulin sensitivity and, and these subjects had pre-diabetes. Correct. So, and, and I would say half of our participants were borderline for type 2 diabetes. They just shy of that. So, you know, as Emily mentioned earlier, uh, the, you know, the participants that you study are really important. So we took people mm -hmm. who we know, you know, they already had impairments in their blood sugar. So if there's a benefit for improving blood sugar, we should be able to see it in our study. Mm -hmm. And not all studies do that. Right. So it might be that some benefits or metabolic benefits that are independent of weight loss may be subject to the baseline health of the person that is doing the intervention. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Or they're preventative and these studies are done, mm -hmm. done over decades to know that right. it would have a, mm -hmm. a preventative effect long-term. That's a good point too. Uh, and then the other question that I have for you or comment, Courtney, is someone listening might think six-hour eating window 
geez, mm. that's tough. Uh, and 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 I'll put my hand up. I'm I'm one of those those people yeah. that is thinking that. So, and I understand the rationale for the study. You you wanted to to get sufficient uh, contrast in that exposure to really see if there was a difference mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm interested in in if you measured adherence or any type of qualitative type feedback from the subjects. How did they go with it? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So we actually forced them to be adherent in the study. <laughs> they didn't have a choice. Um, but generally, they struggled, perhaps not in the way you'd expect. So they actually struggled to eat all the food in that six-hour period because they felt so stuffed. So imagine eating Thanksgiving, every, you know, like a Thanksgiving, you know, meal, dinner type meal every day in a six hour period, you know, so that's kind of how it was for them. So we actually, I no longer, I don't recommend six hour windows for most people. I think eight to 10 is a much better target. Obviously we studied what we studied in this particular first study, um, but we think eight to 10 hours is, is a better target for most people. And I will tell you at the end of the study, we asked our participants, hey, what do you think the average person could do? And on average, they thought an eight-hour window would be more doable for most people. What is it about, say, a 12-hour eating window versus a 10 or an eight-hour uh, eating window that kind of makes the difference there? Is there some sort of threshold where the body you know, switches into a, a kind of fasting state? Is that why that's important? Yeah, I think that's where it's, it's kind of going. And more research needs to be done on that. And again, it's fairly nuanced. So depending on what your last meal is and how much you have of it is going to change, you know, how long it'll be until you get to that fasted state. Additionally, like if you're working out right after, or if you're just sitting down, those are going to be very different things that will impact how fast you get there. But generally I think it's, it, the general consensus is you probably need 10 to 12 hours before you would even start to have any kind of ketogenesis going on. And that once you get past that, you would have more ketone production. And so that 12-hour mark is kind of right where we think you're probably not hurting yourself too much, but you don't see a lot of benefits. And there was a study done um, in Switzerland where they did find just that, where they did a 12-hour intervention. And there was another one in South America, I believe. And they didn't see any direct benefits of the 12-hour eating interval. And it seems like that's just a little bit too long to see any benefits there. Whereas when we do even 10-hour interventions and, and participants shift a little up closer to 11, you do still see benefits. So mm-hmm. it seems like there's something that below 12 um, is beneficial. And the studies that have gone very short, like four hours compared to eight hours, don't really see any benefits in the four-hour. Um, so it does seem like eight to 10 is kind mm-hmm. of a sweet spot. And so would I be right that, uh, Courtney, you mentioned there that you don't think there's any sort of independent effects on lipids uh, at this stage? with with uh, early time-restricted eating. You can correct me if I heard that wrong. But my, my read is that it does seem fairly consistent or at least it's been reproduced a number of times, your study, and then I read a study, I think the first author was Robert Jones. That was a, a 2020 paper that looked at early time-restricted eating and insulin sensitivity. And then there was a, another study by Parr that I think was an Australian group, again, saw some improvements in glycemic control. Does that appear to be the kind of metabolic, the, the, the most reproducible metabolic benefit of time-restricted eating independent of weight loss. And second part of that question, how does the early time-restricted eating compare to kind of later time-restricted eating if we're talking about, say, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. versus midday to 8 p.m.? 
which I think a lot of people who are doing intermittent fasting are, are kind of, that's their, their protocol. Um, do we know how those compare in terms of insulin sensitivity and, and glycemic control? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say for early time restricted eating, the most um, common result people find is an improvement in glycemic control. And it's something like 75% of all studies on early time restricted eating find an improvement in some aspects of glycemic control. And, you know, my lab did it with an oral glucose tolerance test. Other labs use other sophisticated procedures, but it's nice that different scientists using different methods have come to the same result. I'll say the second most common thing that we see, although it's not measured in a lot of study, studies, are improvements in blood pressure. And there have been some really elegant studies done in rodents where they find that when they eat earlier in the day, they actually excrete extra sodium and that in turn lowers their blood pressure. Um, and so we think those are the most kind of the most common benefits. Um, now, most studies on time restricted eating haven't looked at early time restricted eating. They've looked at, you know, time restricted eating by skipping breakfast or just eating a little bit later in the day. Like Emily mentioned earlier, eating breakfast a little later, dinner a little earlier. Um, to my knowledge, there have been three studies comparing early versus later time-restricted eating. So the one that Emily mentioned earlier, I think it was a one-week-long study in 15 men, and they found by and large there were improvements in glycemic control in um, both the early and what they called delayed time-restricted eating. So this was time-restricted eating by, by skipping breakfast. And I think there was one, I think it was maybe fasting glucose that was a little better in the early time restricted eating group, but by and large, the benefits were really similar. Uh, more recently, there was a study out of Japan in 90 adults comparing early versus sort of middle of the day time restricted eating. So in this study, they were comparing, I think it was 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. versus 11 um, starting after 11 and then ending eight hours earlier. It was a five-week study. And in this study, they found early time-restricted eating was better than both the control condition and uh, midday time-restricted eating for weight loss, insulin sensitivity, um, the diversity of bacteria in your gut, and then also for lowering inflammation. So they kind of had a ranking where early time-restricted eating was better than midday time-restricted eating, which was better than kind of eating throughout mm -hmm. the day. When, when you say early time-restricted eating and you talk about 8 a.m., I just want to kind of get clear on something. Do any of these studies uh, collect data to understand the average time that people wake up and therefore when that first meal is, how distant that is from, from actually rolling out of bed? Are these people rolling out of bed yes. and they having their first bite straight away or is it a little bit mm -hmm. delayed? Depends on the study. We measure it in all of our studies and we when we say early time-restricted eating, we usually define that as eating within a 10-hour period that ends before about 5 p.m. Um, all of our studies have been eight, six or eight-hour windows, um, and we've always required our participants to start eating within one to two hours of waking up mm -hmm. or we've given them, given them a fixed schedule, but it depends a lot on the mm -hmm. study. So there's no negative effect yeah. on glycemic control, for example, if you start that window as soon as you wake up, I'm just thinking with regards to where melatonin, cortisol, other hormones are, do you need to allow a certain amount of time and get light exposure before your body is geared up? Or are you kind of ready to go and, and you're getting optimal glycemic control straight away? Yeah, so great question. So um, the original data from the 1990s we have, Ed Van Cotter did a series of studies where she literally 
infused glucose just straight into people for 30 hours and looked at their blood sugar control. And she found even at 6 a.m. in the morning, they had better blood sugar control than later in the day or when they were sleeping. That said, you know, it wasn't a large study. And what we now know is about half of people have a genetic mutation in their melatonin receptors. And it take in those individuals who have a certain mutation, it takes a little longer for mel melatonin levels to fall in the morning. So my suspicion is in, in some individuals, it's better to get bright light exposure before you start eating. Mm -hmm. So maybe wait more like an hour or two after eating. But um, I don't think we have a super clear answer on this yet. Yeah. And, and in all of our studies where we let individuals choose when they want to eat, they generally choose nine to seven or the latest we see is 10 to eight, sometimes eight to six. Um, but people usually don't go to an extreme. And I don't think there are any studies out there that have compared saying eight to four versus nine to five. Is that really a significant difference? And I, I, I doubt that it would be. I think the general idea is that you're eating when you're active and when you're awake. Sure. And sometimes when you do these 12 to eight things and you might be someone who's up and going at 6 a.m., that's where you really try to see some negative benefit, some negative effects of having it that much later in the day. But if you're someone who wakes up at 10 or 11 in the morning, which there are people that have circadian mutations that wake up mm -hmm. later, then yeah, I wouldn't tell those people to try to wake up early to eat, you know, like they should fit to their body. So I think the general rule we like to think of is like, wait at least an hour after you wake up and stop eating at least three or four hours before you go to bed and then figure out what works for you. And if you're in that kind of zone, I don't think there's a huge difference between, you know, one hour earlier or one hour mm -hmm. later. So in some ways, early is kind of relative to your sleep cycle and, and when you wake up. Yeah. And I think one of the problems is that for people that might have to wake up very early to commute, um, maybe they have to wake up at five or 6am. Maybe like I know school teachers sometimes have very early start times. They're forcing themselves to wake up very early. They're not even hungry yet. Melatonin is definitely still high and then they're forcing themselves to eat. I think that's where you get a problem with early mm -hmm. eating. Whereas if they gave the body a chance to wake up a little first before they ate, it would probably serve them a lot better. Sure. It does seem though that the majority of people, at least that, that I know who are doing in intermittent fasting, are doing it from midday to 8 p.m. So it would seem that in, in theory at least, shifting that a little bit towards the earlier part of the day could be beneficial. But then the question uh, that, that follows is adherence and how would that be something that someone could implement into their lifestyle and for example, if you're shifting your dinner from 8 p.m. down to 5 p.m., is that something that you can do socially? Does that work with your family, et cetera? And I'm sure that's something that both of you have, have thought about. Yeah, and in our, we, in our recent study, we did a pretty extreme schedule, so to speak. We tried um, a 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. schedule and fast for the rest of the day. It's actually really interesting. We asked people at the end of the study, what do you, what do you plan to do in the long term? And the control group, almost no one wanted to do the early time-restricted eating. And about a quarter of people wanted to do time-restricted eating by eating in the middle of the day. Um, I was actually surprised more people in the control group didn't want to try time-restricted eating. But, you know, that's the data. Um, but among the people in the early time-restricted eating group, we found 40% of them wanted to continue time-restricted eating and early time-restricted eating in some shape or form. So we're finding that once people try it, a significant, obviously it's not a majority of people, but a significant number of people want to continue with it. Mm -hmm. And in our particular study, we found benefits for mood. And so we're thinking, because they didn't know, you know, that they were, that they were getting any extra weight loss benefit while they're in this study. But obviously you can 
sense how you feel it. Mm. And our participants reported having higher energy levels and less fatigue and fewer feelings of depression and dejection. Um, and so we think there may be some benefits that might be appropriate for someone. Now, I doubt half the po U.S. population is going to want to do early time restricted eating. So I always tell people, you know, this is really the million dollar question in the field, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly what time of day can you practice time restricted eating and, and get benefits? Sure. Um, yeah, I would agree. I think a slightly earlier in the day is beneficial, but I think the evidence is strong enough that any time restricted eating is better than not at all. So if you have to eat dinner at 7.30 p.m. because that's when your family eats dinner and that's really important to you, then yeah, I would do that. But does it have to be eight hours? Like, could you just eat 10 a.m. till 8 p.m.? Probably. I don't know that there's that much of an additional benefit there. I think, you know, and, and to Courtney's point, that improved energy and decreased fatigue and increased mood was also seen in Sachin's paper in 2015. Um, even in those first few eight, that seems to be an across-the-board thing. Um, and I've also seen across the board in many different populations is that you have this decreased hunger. Mm -hmm. So it's not like people are starving during this period. They actually have decreased hunger overall. Again, probably because you're supporting the circadian system that it's allowing your body to mm -hmm. know when to rest. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned mood. I'm, I'm involved in a, a study that's being designed at the moment, uh, a group from Bond University in Australia that's looking at dietary patterns and mood and they're they're doing, there's a preliminary study and then the idea is to set up a new prospective study. But it, it could be interesting to, to actually include into that, get some data on, on folks eating windows as well. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll men make mention of that to them. You, you spoke there about adherence and something that comes to mind here and can be a little bit of a segue into discussing some of these more recent trials often TRE is kind of put up head to head with calorie restriction and, and we can go into whether that's a good idea or, or not. Um, but I, I wonder, is, is, is there any data out there that speaks to adherence and looks at the differences between being able to stick to time restricted eating and lose weight versus tracking calories uh, and losing weight that way? Well, some of the earliest studies on time-restricted eating, literally the participants were only told, just restrict your eating, don't worry about counting calories, you know, they weren't given any instructions to eat healthier, and they spontaneously lost weight. And in these studies, they were typically losing something like 1% to 4% of their body weight. So this is, you know, a significant amount. And so we have a really good, pretty solid body of evidence that when you tell people to restrict their food intake, they, they tend to lose weight. Now, if you combine that with calorie restriction, it kind of depends on the paradigm, right? So if you have a background, if you have a study that's pursuing very extreme calorie restriction, as Emily said earlier uh, today, it can be sometimes hard to detect differences uh, or additional weight loss benefits due to time-restricted eating because, you know, the participants are already aggressively losing weight. But most of the studies that have measured appetite or food intake have found that it helps people spontaneously eat less. Uh, so... Um, you know, I think there's probably a small benefit, but, you know, there for time-restricted eating. And we're starting to see meta-analyses that are now pulling the data across large numbers of studies. And they're kind of estimating that the average effect is about 2% 2, 2 weight loss relative to the control group. So not necessarily a large effect. And that effect kind of effect can get lost if you're having a very aggressive weight loss study where people are already losing like 10% of their body weight. Mm -hmm. So it's just harder sometimes to detect these differences in large studies. Yeah. And I think uh, I agree with everything you just said. I think along those same lines, like um, the paper that just came out a couple of days ago in obesity from uh, Corey Reidner's group, um, they even, there's a line in there that says like 
for the group that was doing both. Um, and they were struggling with caloric restriction. So they told them to just focus more on time restricted eating and they still saw the same change. Right. So, um, they also didn't have a huge difference between eating window within their participants. Um, but I, I do think one of the ideas is that some people might be able to do caloric restriction, but if everyone could do caloric restriction and exercise all the time, this would kind of be, a, mm-hmm. probably we would never get to this point. Um, but time restricted eating is an alternate way to potentially see large health benefits. And I, again, I don't think that weight is the only way that you get those benefits. And I don't even think it's the main mm-hmm. outcome that I would look for. Um, as a, as a benefit from time restricted eating. So with that in mind, this kind of idea that, that, or at least my assumption anyway, is that a number of people that are interested in time restricted eating are interested in it because they either have tried counting calories and, and haven't been able to adhere to it or just don't feel like that's the right approach for them. And thus for them, the, the, comparison is really between doing nothing and doing TRE. I wonder how you feel about some of these more recent studies where the time-restricted eating group is being compared to calorie restriction and often the time-restricted eating group is doing calorie restriction at the same time. I, just, I think they're interesting studies. I think it's nice to see that data. Um, I think the only point where it gets concerning to me is when the media oversimplifies it to a point where it's it's a misleading message to say time restricted eating has no benefits because again i don't think that's it's those studies really weren't aimed to answer the questions that we're really looking at um i don't think anyone ever really thought that you know if you're on an extreme caloric restriction which especially the new york the um nejm paper mm-hmm. they were achieving 35 percent caloric restriction in the first three months and then 25 percent at a year that is far more caloric restriction than we see in caloric restriction studies in the u.s like the calorie trials had 25 percent for a period and they were having 15 percent and they still saw benefits and weight loss of caloric restriction so they did a great job mm-hmm. they also had two people, two staff monitoring people every single day. You know, Corey Reidner's group also had classes that people are going to. I mean, it's a very intensive behavioral intervention program to get people to follow caloric restriction. You're still only, you know, it's an intensive program. And if you do that and people are adherent, um, which both of these studies had pretty good adherence, then of course you're going to see weight loss with caloric restriction. Um, And to not see a significant difference beyond that with time-restricted eating, I don't find surprising at all. Um, and again, these participants are pretty young and healthy overall. And so you wouldn't see changes in other, you know, in, in things like glucose regulation mm-hmm. or blood pressure, which we do see in all of our other studies that with people that do have prediabetes or metabolic syndrome. Um, and so I don't find these uh, results shocking. I think it's really interesting to see that hey, an eight hour time restricted eating with caloric restriction is pretty much the same as a 10 hour or 11 hour time restricted eating with caloric restriction. Okay, maybe that's a little bit easier then to sell someone, just do 10 hours, your caloric restriction that way, there's no reason to force yourself into eight. Um, but beyond that, I don't think it it is anything to say that time restricted eating isn't effective at what we had kind of hypothesized that it would be. Now, I will also even add, I don't think we're we're not yet at the point where we're doing very large studies to nail some of these questions definitively. I think if we had larger sample sizes, you know, we would be able to answer these questions more definitively. So, I mean, even if you think about the whole debate versus low, low versus high carb diets, right. To really answer that question, they have to go to studies where they're enrolling 600 Mm -hmm. people, right. To definitively answer that question. We're still 
most of our studies enrolling less than 100, right? Mm -hmm. So in any weight loss study, you will have people who gain weight, even though they're supposed to lose weight, and then people who lose massive amounts of weight. So with that kind of variability, it's much harder to see, Mm -hmm. you know, smaller or moderate differences in Mm -hmm. weight loss. Yeah, and and on that example of low versus high carb, one of those uh, diet studies that stands out is the Diet Fit study from Christopher Gardner's group. And one of the very interesting findings there was the variance within each group. So some people did really well on low carb and some yeah. did really well on high carb. And unless you looked at a waterfall plot, you missed a lot of that that variance Correct. that does show that even though the averages were the same, there is a particular benefit for certain individuals. And then I guess the next question is how do you test to kind of better predict who might do better with a, a certain intervention? Emily, you mentioned these two trials. Uh, which I think we just spent a little bit more time on. And the, so the studies that I'm, I'm speaking to here are the Corey Rinders one, which came out of University of Colorado. I think that was just published in the last week or so. Uh, and then the, the one out of China published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the one that sort of sparked the New York Times uh, article. Both of these studies are relatively similar, I guess, in, in design. Um, and these are the ones that I think might trip people up when they hear that time-restricted eating is, is not effective. And I know that you sort of spoke to some of the things in, the, in these papers, but I just want to spell things out a little bit more here. So what, what are the really important things to understand when it comes to, say, the, uh, the differences in eating window between the intervention group and the control group in these studies and also some of the, the kind of baseline, I guess, characteristics of the subjects that were included. Yeah. So I think one thing to note just from the baseline is none of these are time-restricted eating versus nothing. It's time-restricted eating with caloric restriction or caloric restriction alone. The second caveat to that is even the caloric restriction alone group was debatably a form of time-restricted eating. So in the NEJM paper, At baseline, the participants had a little bit over a 10-hour eating window, which I would consider an intervention of just time-restricted eating in its own right. Um, And then their their TRE group had about eight hours. So it is a little bit shorter, but it's really maybe about a two-hour difference. Um, Similarly, in the uh, Reidner's paper, um, they had, I think, around 11 hours at baseline. And even the caloric restriction group did decrease to about 10 hours Um, and the time restricted eating group was a little bit shorter than that, but they, you know, it was only about an hour and a half difference between these two groups. So this wasn't like what we normally see where there's usually at least a four hour difference between a time restricted and a, and a, um, kind of control group for that. These were really quite similar. Um, and none of them were beyond 12 hours. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. We're not talking about what kind of the median eating window we see in the U.S., which is about 14 plus hours, mm-hmm. it's we're talking about kind of shorting eating anyway. So that's a, a big confound to both studies. Um, the other thing is with the Reidner's papers, as, as Courtney had mentioned, I think they were younger in general. Um, and in both papers, the participants were already pretty healthy. They were overweight, but otherwise were pretty healthy. And so if you're looking for things like blood pressure changes or um, HbA1c, which is kind of an average blood glucose over the past three months, or fasting glucose, or even cholesterol, which fluctuates a lot based on diet, um, you're not going to see any really big changes in a group that has normal levels at baseline. And you just wouldn't expect to. There's not a lot of room to grow. You know, maybe this would be helpful for them. You know, maybe they'll 
do better 10 years from now if they stick to this, but we're not doing studies long enough to know that. Um, and so I think when you say, okay, well, time-restricted eating isn't working, um, I just don't see that because the assumption would be that time-restricted eating helps you lose weight separate from decreasing calories. Um, and potentially there could have been an added effect. And even within those papers, you do see a slight change between the two. They just aren't significant differences. And I think you get somewhat of a ceiling effect. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if it's raining outside and the rain washed all the dust off your car and then you go through a, a car wash, well, okay, well, the rain kind of already got the dust off. Um, you're kind of hitting the same thing twice. Um, and so I wouldn't expect a big difference there. That doesn't mean the car wash doesn't wash your car better. Um, but you might not be able to see a difference there within these outcomes. Mm -hmm. And just building on that, the way I often think about it is I look at the weight of all evidence as well as the quality of the study, right? So generally what we find is the better the quality of the study, the more likely it is to find a, a benefit for time-restricted eating. About half of the studies find weight loss benefits. If you pull all that data, you get a statistically significant effect. Um, and then the other thing, there's a little bit of a, a media effect here, right? So the two, um, the two studies... Um, that recently came out with null results were published in JAMA Internal Medicine and the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, if you look at the top six largest studies on time-restricted eating, four out of six have found a positive benefit. It's just the two null results got in higher profile journals, right? Mm -hmm. So it gets more media attention. So, you know, the average reader will see those studies and think, oh, it's not working. But when you actually research the field on you know, a daily basis, you know all the studies, right? And so you pull them together mentally in your head and you say, what does the data tell us? And if there weren't a genuine effect, on average, we expect only 5% of the studies to find an effect. So the fact that we see 50% of the studies find a benefit for weight loss, mm -hmm. to me at least, suggests there's something there. Why do you think it is those null findings are finding their way into some of the larger journals? Is are people looking to for this to fail? I think there definitely are. <laughs> I mean, I think. <laughs> I mean, very bluntly, yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are very skeptical of it, um, and are kind of set in a way. And again, all of the studies that have shown a null result. I don't think actually go against the hypothesis we have for time-restricted eating. I mean, I'm of the mindset, if you believe something, you should do everything you can to try to prove it wrong. And that's what I've been doing for the past six years. And I still have not seen any evidence to prove time-restricted eating doesn't have cardiometabolic benefits. Um, and now we're even seeing more benefits in inflammation. Do I think it's a magic weight loss lifestyle pattern? No, I think it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And the studies that have shown null results either didn't have any interaction with participants or very little interaction with participants, or they were combined with something where you, you know, just theoretically, like they weren't even powered to see that effect. They're powered to see a change compared to baseline, not a change compared to some other intervention that's almost identical mm -hmm. to it in the first place. Um, so I still have seen no evidence to say that time-restricted eating doesn't have health benefits. And I've seen many studies done around the world with diverse populations to show that there are really huge benefits. Um, and even done in different ways, whether you provide food and you have them eat in the lab like Courtney does, which is amazing for looking at mechanism, or if you put them out in the real world and say, go for it, this is your window, log everything you eat. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of evidence there to show that there are pretty widespread benefits. 
Yeah. I just even think about a study we did. We did only, we had another study I haven't mentioned yet where we had participants do time-restricted eating for only four days. And then we took blood samples both in the morning and the evening. And we saw increases in CERT1, which is a longevity gene, right? Consistent with the intermittent fasting studies in animals. We saw increases in um, genes associated with autophagy, which suggests greater cellular recycling of worn out proteins. So they're just enough distinct aspects of health that someone has demonstrated in some study is improved in the absence of weight loss or even if food intake is matched to the mm -hmm. control group that really suggests there's something robust here. And I will say also the animal uh, research is, and the consensus is actually pretty amazing in the animal research a field, it's something like 80% of studies find some sort of benefit. I mean, which is really large if you think mm -hmm. about it. So it's just the human literature that's a little bit more mixed. Now you could argue maybe that's due to the way, you know, time-restricted eating works in humans versus animals. But I think by and large, we need to be running larger mm -hmm. studies or we need different study designs where there are other elements that are sometimes just not optimized. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite the time to give up on TRE just yet. It sounds like to me from everything that I'm hearing you say in terms of future trials and also just individuals thinking about this, the benefits that one can get from TRE seem to be dependent on a, a few things and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the first would be what is your baseline eating window? If you're currently eating at say 11 hours over the day and you decrease that to nine, maybe the benefit isn't as big as if you're eating right now at 14, 15 and you reduce that to nine. And the second is what is your baseline health? So are you someone that currently has impaired glycemic control and perhaps has pre-diabetes? Well, maybe you'll see greater benefit than someone who already has uh, a normal HbA1c and good blood glucose control. Would, would those two things be fair and potentially instructive in terms of helping set up future larger trials? Yes, absolutely. In the short term, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think when you're looking at a research trial, you know, they're usually only funded for hopefully up to five years, three to five years at a time. Human trials take a lot of time and recruitment can be difficult. So you're only following people for maybe up to a year. Um, I think people that are already healthy um, can still see some benefits, but it's much harder to track in a short period of time. So I still think eating within a 10-hour period should be a goal for everyone. I, I've yet to see any adverse effects, and I think we could potentially see benefits long-term. Um, but as far as a short-term effect, I would absolutely agree with that. If you're trying to see a change within you know, three to six months or even a year, if you have nothing that needs to be improved from the onset, not quite sure what you'll see change. One other trial that I'd like to speak to both of you about, and Courtney, I think you were referring to it. I think it was the one that was published in JAMA. This is the TREAT trial. I think that's the one that you were referring to. And I mentioned Ethan Wise uh, earlier, who was included in that New York Times piece. He seems to have been convinced that there's no benefit to, to TRE and this was his trial. Uh, if my memory serves me correctly, it was a 12-week intervention. It was comparing a, a TRE group. It wasn't early TRE uh, versus a group that was given some advice around structuring meals over the course of a day. They seemed to, to find no significant difference in, in weight loss. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this trial and, and what it does tell us, what it doesn't tell us? 
Yeah, absolutely. So they were comparing eating three meals a day. That's what the control group did. And the control group was required to eat breakfast every day versus effectively skipping breakfast, starting eating at 12 p.m. and finishing eating at 8 p.m. And they found no benefit for weight loss. And also participants lost a little bit of lean mass, though it wasn't an amount that we would consider clinically significant. So I think, I mean, this is where it's really important to look at all of the research that's been done on meal timing. So there are a bunch of, about a handful of studies out of Japan that have done these very carefully controlled studies where they compare eating three meals a day versus uh, skipping breakfast and eating two meals a day. And in all of those studies, they find that skipping breakfast and then, you know, eating um, at lunchtime and at dinner time that that actually raises glucose levels across the day. So at least in the short term, you know, the data we have on on uh, glycemic control suggests that actually skipping breakfast and eating two meals is worse. Now, in their particular study, you know, this is where you start asking questions of like, okay, they're eating in a shorter duration, um, but they're also eating significantly later in the day. They weren't necessarily moving um, um, both, you know, breakfast a little later and dinner a little earlier. And in fact, if you actually dig really deep in that in that paper, you'll actually find that the group that did time-restricted eating starting to go to bed later. So this is suggesting they're eating significantly later in the day. So I suspect they didn't find an effect in any endpoint just because we know that there have been studies that show if you tell people eat meals at regular times, um, that that actually improves their uh, cardiovascular health um, mm-hmm. and their metabolic health. So, right. So again, the control group is not a no intervention group. It's definitely an intervention group. And in fact, some of the benefits of time restricted eating may be due to fasting duration, some due to the time of day, and then some do the regularity of meals. So when I think about meal timing studies, I think about all those different aspects and how they interact together. So you just have to consider them, you know, um, together. So my suspicion is because they forced the control group to eat so much earlier in the day, that may have wiped out any benefits from time-restricted eating. I don't know if Emily will agree with me, but that's my take on that. Yeah, no, I agree with those points. And and one thing I wanted to bring up, so that same group from Israel, from Oren Foray's group, um, you know, they did a lot of really interesting work on timing of eating. And and we've mainly been talking about duration, but the phase, which is kind of getting it early or late, like what time of the day you eat, the regularity of when you eat, so how much variability you have, as well as the frequency of when you eat. You know, are you eating 16 times a day? Are you eating three times a day or two times a day? All of those things are timing of eating and all of those things affect health. Um, And their group also has shown really nice studies showing that if you're just skipping a meal, if you skip breakfast, you do have a higher glucose response to your first meal in the afternoon, just like, you know, Courtney had kind of mentioned. So again, I think that is one one big part of it. and it's something really important to think about when you are trying to figure out the right schedule for you. I think regularity of, of eating time. Um, and, you know, even in our studies where they did have a regular eating window, we actually saw that their sleep um, started to become more regular as well. Like it does seem mm. like there's this kind of downstream effect. Um, the other issue that I have um, with a JAMA paper from Ethan Weiss's group is half of the participants were done remotely where they never actually met with the clinic. They were able to sign up online. Um, which is a great way for reaching out to different populations. But with every pro like that, you have a con as well, in which case, if you actually look at the adherence, the people who did respond had a pretty high adherence, but only about 24% of the responses that they would have expected came in. So there was a lot of unknown of if people are actually 
doing the intervention itself. And they had half of the participants who did come into the clinic and they saw better results than those who didn't come in. And so I think whenever you're doing a behavioral intervention, they're usually pretty intensive. You know, if you look into caloric restriction or other dietary interventions, they frequently entail having like support groups where you have to come in and talk about it and all these other things to be able to get that. And it that never happens in time-restricted only studies. The only times I've seen it are really when you have it um, like in these last two papers that paired it with caloric restriction or with Courtney's work where they're actually coming in and eating with you. But even then it requires a lot of work to get that. So without giving as much interaction with the participants, time-restricted eating has actually seen pretty similar results, which I think is pretty shocking in its own right. But if you don't have any interaction with your participants, I don't think any behavioral intervention, you would really expect to see much of a change. So again, I think that's a pretty big caveat to that finding. And it's important to keep in mind. The other thing I'd like to say just for looking at any time-restricted eating study is many of them don't even look at what the eating window is at baseline. Luckily, that's become more common, but that's kind of like saying we're going to do caloric restriction, but I don't know how many calories you eat right now. Mm. Like, what are you comparing it to, right? And so I think the quality of, of papers has has gone up a lot. And I think this field was trying to figure out what it was exactly and, and take those things into consideration. But some of the papers that don't find any findings also did not really document when they were eating very well, or it was just on a survey after the fact um, on self-reporting, which are, are pretty big caveats to know when someone is actually eating and it it makes it hard to test the mm-hmm. efficacy of the intervention itself. Yeah. And I just want to build on one thing you said, right? So kind of buried in the manuscript, the, the, they had half of the participants come in for their assessments in person. And those who came in for their assessments in person, there was a statistical trend towards an improvement in weight loss. So yeah, go figure. Exactly. <laughs> right? The participants who actually got yeah. a little more handholding or touch actually were more adherent and lost a little more weight. Yeah, You, you brought up the the idea of skipping breakfast again there and potentially the negative effects this could have on blood glucose control. And uh, I'm not sure if the group in Israel you were speaking to then is the same one we were talking about earlier in this conversation, but it may seem counterintuitive to people who perhaps are skipping breakfast and let's say they're doing it because it allows them to just have two meals. They have their lunch and their dinner and they're thinking, well, that will help with my caloric intake and help me with my health and, and, and weight loss. Can you talk a little bit more to some of these breakfast studies and what we know about the benefits of having more food at the beginning of the day? Yeah, I think a lot of the breakfast um, you know, breakfast is the most important, gets a little bit convoluted. And sometimes they're confounded by the fact that people who skip breakfast tend to eat later yeah. um, or tend to binge eat later at night. And if you just look at that factor, that seems to be the biggest concluding thing. So I think some of that is taken away when you do make sure you are stopping at 8 p.m. That being said, I think this kind of gets back to the circadian component of this, where you want to be taking in food when your body is active and moving and can process that food and not at the end of the day when you're going to be sitting down and probably be sedentary pretty much for the rest of the day. Um, And all of the studies that have looked at, you know, even in rodent models, it really, the key has been is to eat during your active zone. And it sounds kind of overly simple, but I think that's kind of how I look at it. So I would say if you do, if you're awake for a very long period of time and you're not eating, I think that does kind of alter how your body is going to respond to your first food intake. And I think that's what some of these studies have shown. Um, and what we both kind of talked about is that that first meal can have compromised glucose regulation, whereas having something in the morning 
Um, even if it's maybe not a huge breakfast, some people don't like a big breakfast, I would say then have a big lunch. But I think saying having a a really small breakfast or a small lunch and then binge eating at night, I think we've kind of seen across the board from many different fields that that's really not the way to go. And pushing most of your calories to the first half of your day is really ideal. Um, And again, if you get into the nitty gritty of it, I think it is probably breakfast like a king, lunch like a queen, dinner like a popper, whatever the kind of idiom is. But um, I think, you know, even if you just had it in the first half of your day, you'll see most of the benefits there. And then to have a dinner that's, you know, high fiber, high, you know, healthy proteins and fats and not as high in carb. I think there's some interesting studies that have come out there too. Um, Especially, I mean, this is a whole other topic now, but looking at types of foods that you're eating Mm -hmm. at different times of day, or if you do have to eat late at night because of certain shift work schedules, controlling the macronutrients of that might have big effects. And I think that's also where the field is going. So even if you can't stick to a specific window, the timing of macronutrients, I think, is also very important. And again, there's many different aspects of food timing, but duration is, you can encompass many of them and is a bit easier to stick to. I want to highlight two studies from that group that, at least for me, just kind of blew my mind when they first came out. So uh, the group led by Daniela Jakobowitz and Oren Freud in Israel. They've done about a handful of studies testing the old adage of eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. So two of the ones that really blew my mind is first they did a study in 2015 where they took individuals with type 2 diabetes. And they did, again, they did a what's called a controlled feeding study where they provide all the food and they make sure that the participants, um, when they're trying the two different eating schedules, they're eating the exact same food. They were able to show in one of these studies that after only one week of front-loading your calories to breakfast and lunch, that they were able to reduce mean glucose levels across the day. And not only did they reduce mean glucose levels, but they actually increased insulin secretion, which is huge because we know when you have type 2 diabetes, that actually compromises your beta cells' ability to produce insulin. And over time, they actually die. So they showed with only one week, they can improve the functioning of those beta cells and produce more insulin. So amazing. And then the second study that they did that really blew my mind is they did a study in 60 women with PCOS who were struggling with fertility, so they weren't ovulating, and they didn't allow their participants to lose weight, but they still had to follow these two eating schedules. And after about three months, the uh, group that was eating a large uh, breakfast, about 50% of the women started ovulating again versus only 20% in the control group. So this is pretty impressive. And what we know now is some of the same circadian clock genes that are involved in well, some of the same genes that are involved in producing these 24 hour rhythms and our metabolism physiology also produce rhythms that are shorter mm. and longer than 24 hours, including the menstrual cycle. So, um, I just think it's so cool how everything comes full mm-hmm. circle. Oh yeah. So chronic circadian disruption will destroy fertility. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got some more questions on or related particularly to, to women's health that I might save for the end, some some sort of rapid fire questions that I have that I know <laughs> often come up uh, with this topic of, of fasting. So we'll save that for, for a moment. But just as a way to kind of summarize where we're up to here and, and you've really elegantly described some of the uh, – not necessarily issues with these studies, but just some things to think about with regards to interpreting them and trying to make sense of the totality of evidence. What, as of today, do you think it is safe for us to say about time-restricted eating and its utility for, for human health? And what 
do you think are the remaining gaps where we have some hypotheses, but we need future research to to kind of help tease things out a little bit more? Yes, I, um, I think the general finding is one, it seems to be safe. I think that's one important thing. There have yet to see any serious adverse effects in shorter than eight hour eating windows. So it does seem to be safe, even for those who have type two diabetes. So I think that's been um, an exciting finding to know that this is something that people can do, at least within adults, there hasn't been much done in children yet. Um, I think the other thing is that we have seen across the board um, in most studies that if you do have compromised glucose regulation, that this can be an effective way to help improve your glucose regulation, even if you're not losing large amounts of weight, even if you don't change your diet. Now, not that you shouldn't, I think these are complementary things, um, but I see time-restricted eating as a healthy component of eating. It's not just what and how much, but also when you eat, it's going to control how your body processes that food and how that food is going to affect your overall health. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting work to be done in the cardiometabolic field and in the inflammation field. So in things such as cancers and how people are going to be able to respond to that. As far as cardiometabolic, there's been mixed findings on cholesterol and triglycerides. Um, and I think some of them have not been maybe sophisticated enough tests. I think if you get into other type of lipo profiles where you can see breakdowns of different types of cholesterol, there might be some interesting things there um, or even inflammation around arteries that could change, that could change prognosis. So I think there's more to be done in that field to really understand the cardiovascular benefits. But I think it's, I've seen a lot of evidence to show that you can really improve glucose regulation by just simply controlling the timing of when you eat. And so I think that's where we can take it now and then moving that into more cardiovascular as well as inflammation fields to see how it can help those diseases. And then the thing that's very hard to test is how it could be used preventatively as it, how it could be part of a healthy lifestyle for anyone to implement to mm-hmm. potentially, hopefully at least delay the onset of chronic disease. Yeah. And I'll say from my perspective, I think we're a little further away from public health recommendations. So what we need are either larger meta-analyses or we need like the one large definitive study, you know, with hundreds of participants where we demonstrate, um, you know, that time-restricted eating has benefits for weight loss. That's probably the number one thing that people want to know. And we will need something like that before we can make public health recommendations with the field being mixed, you know, about 50-50. Unfortunately, no dietary guidelines committee is going to recommend TRE yet. Um, They probably want to see a randomized controlled trial, not just a meta-analysis showing there's an effect. Um, I will say recently we just did a completed a study and we were estimating the effect um, in terms of not only the weight loss, but sort of calories per day that it reduces um, how much you eat by. And we found about a 236 calorie difference. So that's not necessarily a large effect, but I still call that a modest to moderate effect. So I would also say we also need to kind of characterize the size of the effect. Now, it's very easy to say that, but as I think Emily did such a good job earlier explaining how different study designs can lead to different effects, right? If we ask people to eat in a six-hour window, they're probably going to eat less than if it's a 10-hour window, right? So mm-hmm. just also understanding, you know, what are the optimal fasting durations that, you know, what fasting durations pr- produce what size of a weight loss benefit? Which fasting durations can people stick with? What times of day can people stick with? And one study that my lab is doing is we're actually comparing early versus middle of the day time-restricted eating in the setting of a controlled feeding study. So do we see, you know, what's the relative benefit of early versus later in the day and kind of teasing apart what people can do? And then the last thing is having longer trials, right? Mm -hmm. So we need studies now that, you know, follow people out for a full year. Yeah, tell me about that that kind of 
dream study. If there was going to be a, a big study conducted that would either uh, help reduce uncertainty in this in this space and, and and show that there is real benefits to time restricted eating that are worth including in the dietary guidelines or potentially yeah. falsify some of these hypotheses and, and send yeah. scientists yourselves down yeah. another sort of yeah. rabbit hole, what, sure. what would that yeah. study kind of need to look like? I think actually it's great that you mentioned the diet fit studies earlier because that's what I see as the next phase. So a study with something like 300 to 600 individuals who time, try time-restricted eating at two different times of the day and then they're followed up for a year. And right now, to give you an example, the largest sample size per group we have is about 90 um, per group. And that was a study comparing time-restricted eating versus alternate day modified fasting versus a control group out of China. So I think we're going to need sample sizes on the order of about 150 to 300 per group. Maybe actually, yeah, something on that maybe not quite 300, but something on the order of more like 150 to 200 per group to really nail mm-hmm. nail this question definitively. And also to produce something that's very convincing from like, a you know, a dietary guidelines committee perspective. Yeah, I think if you talk about a dream study, and this is not a next step, but if I was talking dream study, right. I'd want it to be a multi-site trial. So you're working in maybe three very different populations, either within the U.S. or internationally. Um, where you're able to look at, like Courtney said, much larger populations. And I think even having a subset where you are much more clinically involved in handholding and having a subset that is having some guidance, but more app-driven in a real-world setting to see what those effects would be, um, to see kind of like if you are given instruction, is it something you can follow, something along the lines of like the diabetes prevention program, um, where it's still a guided intervention, but a lot of it is done, you know, with some group counseling, but otherwise you're given a lot of information and you can kind of follow along with it. I think that's the dream of where it could go is if we are able to do big enough studies that it could be something along those mm-hmm. lines where it could be um, kind of you provide information, you could join kind of support groups and, and follow it over time. Do you have any fear that potentially some of these null findings that have been published in major journals may impact future funding for larger studies like what you're talking about? Yes and no. I think um, time-restricted eating had a very hard time getting funding for a very long time. If you see this explosion in studies over the past five years, a lot of that is because there was no funding Mm -hmm. for it the first few years. And even our initial trials, you know, our, our cell metabolism paper that came out in 2020 and our, um, the, the uh, Gill and Panda paper in 2015, none of that was funded through national agencies, through traditional funding. It was all foundation and private grants um, that were willing to take on a riskier subject. And NIH was really resistant to it for a long time. And I think they're now very excited about it. And the fields really explode because it's, it's made enough of a way where we kind of pushed hard enough to say, okay, we need to look into this. Um, so potentially I think there may, the naysayers will use this to cling on to, to say, Hey, this doesn't work. But again, I have nothing against what those studies are. I think we just have to be careful about how we interpret them and what we're saying we're going to do. If you're trying to write a study to say time restricted eating is going to improve caloric restriction. I don't know that that's the best way to go. You know, that's really not what we're trying to do here. I think the questions we're asking are pretty significantly different from that. And I don't think that will sway most scientific reviewers from being able to fund legitimate questions. 
Yeah. And I can speak that to that a little bit too. I know you all had a really hard time convincing anyone to get grant funding. I'll tell you the first small study that I submitted to the NIH, one of their viewers gave me a score, an eight out of nine, which is a terrible score and said, I don't think there's any future in time restricted eating. Right. So like, <laughs> Like, I'm going to give you the, like almost the lowest score possible to tank this proposal, right? But I, you know, I was like, that's nice. I, I think these effects are real in the paper and cell metabolism. And I said, we should study it. And I will tell you, there's actually been a huge shift in enthusiasm for studying intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. And so much so that the NIH has now two separate institutes have said there's not enough research on time-restricted eating, we are going to fund grants in cancer and in aging. Mm -hmm. um, and my lab has partnered with different groups, um, and we actually ended up getting those grants. And so we have one study now in 300 patients with rectal cancer to see if time-restricted eating can reduce the side effects from chemotherapy and radiation and actually help shrink the tumors. And then we also have another study comparing calorie restriction to time-restricted eating for slowing the aging process in midlife adults, which I'm super, super excited about. So we're even going to look at things like can time-restricted eating increase stem cell number or um, help, you know, telomeres not shorten with age? Like, can we basically slow the aging process? Um, so I would say now the tide has definitely shifted. I hope the negative studies don't put too much of a damper on it, but I feel the same way with Emily. It's yes and no, right? It depends whether... You know, if you weight things equally, not just by what you see in the media, then you would come to the conclusion it's still worth studying it, like very much so. But if you only focus on big name journals that publish null results, then you know that can be an issue. Talk to me about cancer for a moment, and and I know that there are all sorts of uh, wild claims, I guess, that can be made online, and, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes yeah. kind of enthusiasm can exceed uh, where the publish literature is at in, in any given moment. Uh, am, I, am I right in saying that there is some preclinical evidence to suggest that fasting, fasting mimicking diet, different protocols may be beneficial as a sort of adjunct therapy to say chemotherapy for people with cancer, but it's early and, and kind of uh, by no means definitive at this stage? Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's correct. And um, the theory behind it is actually fascinating. So it's, it's the theory is called the differential stress sensitization theory. And what they found in both animals and in cells is if you subject them to fasting, that kind of puts them in a self-protective mode. They upregulate these stress resistance pathways. So then if there are any external stressors like chemotherapy and radiation that come along, the cells are already in a self-protective mode. So they actually die at a lower rate. So we see less activation of caspase 3 and they die at a lower rate in the face of chemotherapy and radiation. Conversely, tumor cells, because they have these oncogenic mutations, um, they're always in growth mode. They can't, they still, because they're in this hyper-proliferative mode or this hyper-growth mode, they have to kind of shift what fuel sources they, they burn if you fast them. And as a result, they actually end up producing more free radicals when they're fasted. So then if you apply chemotherapy and radiation, the data suggests that they actually die at a higher rate. So it's very cool data. It suggests that we even kind of selectively help the chemotherapy and radiation be more effective by targeting the tumor cells. And then you can also reduce the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. Now, there have been a number of small studies in humans. And um, initially, the studies were testing water-only fasting for something like, you know, two days or three days. Uh, and they did find a reduction in some side effects like nausea. Um, 
but the unfortunate thing is most people are not willing to do water only fasting. I think in one of their studies, they found only about a quarter of people were willing to do water only fasting for that long for two days prior to chemotherapy. And um, so that's where Volter got the idea. So huge props for him. I mean, he, he's really the biggest player in this field. Um, developed the idea to create a, a diet that recapitulates a lot of the benefits of fasting without necessarily doing a complete 24 hour uh, water only or 48 hour water only fast. So he developed the fasting mimicking diet, which is basically a form of what we call intermittent energy restriction, where you eat a very low calorie diet, so typically about 800 calories, and you follow that for usually like three to five days at a time. And you do that right prior to chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and so they just they just published one of their first big trials, I think, in breast cancer patients, just over 100 breast cancer patients. The, the results were not a slam dunk by any means, but they did find some suggestive findings suggesting that... Um, they looked kind of um, at kind of slices of the tumor and they found that it hadn't progressed as much in some of the women. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was some suggestive data there of a benefit. And they did find um, also that some of the blood cells were better protected against chemotherapy mm-hmm. and radiation. So they sustained less DNA damage. Was there any information on kind of prognosis or survival rate or was it too short term to, to detect that? Yeah, too short term. And I think... I can't remember. I think the population, the people they ended up enrolling, I can't remember. It's too bad I can't remember, but they were either, I think they might have been less sick than they suspected. So it was a little harder for them to detect a difference than they were originally expecting. So they ended up ending that trial early. Okay. Yeah. I've, I read a, a review by Luigi Fontana, who's based mm-hmm. out here in, in yeah. Sydney. Uh, I can yes. pop that into the, the show notes. It was in one of the American Cancer Society yeah. journals and he summarized uh, a lot of this and sort of spoke about the fact that there's there's some emerging science, still a little bit of a ways to go, but it is certainly mm-hmm. very fascinating and worth exploring for sure. Did you want to say something, Connie? Yeah, and I think w- one of the other things I wanted to say is um, – we are also testing this on a molecular level. So one of the things we're doing in our study is we are um, we're measuring molecular markers involved in cell growth and cell death. And what we know is intermittent fasting seems to slow down the rate at which cells grow and divide. And that may be a kind of common mechanism underlying some of the benefits for both aging and for cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll actually be measuring in this study, you know, rates of autophagy, rates of uh, cell death via apoptosis, um, and then also cell growth in both uh, tumor tissue and healthy tissue. So it'll be nice if we see an alignment of both clinical benefits as well as molecular benefits. What does this mean? I'm, I'm just thinking here, if someone's listening and maybe they have cancer and are going through treatment or have a friend or family, what does this mean for them right now in terms of actual recommendations? Yeah, we our data is pretty weak at the moment, even though it's suggestive. Um, so I don't think we're anywhere close to being able to recommend that people definitely do this. Um, the studies have not found any negative effects so far, but we're really on the order of just a handful of studies. And some of the sample sizes are 10 people, which is really not enough. You know, I don't think there's a harm in doing water-only fasting for cancer treatment. And in fact, Andreas Michelson's group in Germany has been trying something called, I think it's Buchinger fasting. It's very similar to a fasting mimicking diet, except you consume vegetable juices for a few days. Um, And I think they've gotten some good results with improving the quality of life of people who go through chemotherapy and radiation. 
So if you're willing to experiment on yourself, probably no negative effects, but we can't promise that there are any benefits yet. Mm. Science isn't there yet. The other interesting aspect of health that you mentioned was aging, and, and Emily, you spoke about this earlier mm. as well. And there's there's obviously quite a lot of animal data out there. This is a little bit harder to, to test in humans. It would require a very, very well-controlled and very long um, study. What are, what are your thoughts on shortening your eating window and, and whether this will have an effect on how long you live? I think especially for those who have... Uh, metabolic risks or might be pre-diabetic, I think you might be able to potentially delay the progression or stop the progression of some of these diseases, which could potentially cause complications because none of these diseases are really um, alone. You know, like they have high comorbidities. So having diabetes increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, Being overweight increases the risk for a lot of these different things. And so being able to kind of stave off those things might improve, maybe not full lifespan, but your healthy lifetime or quality of life over time. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, But you're right. The animal studies are really where we've seen the most data, especially within um, flies um, is actually where you see the longest um, expansion in life. And, and, you know, it's only a few weeks, so you can do that quite easily. Um, And I know more work will be coming out in rodents uh, fairly soon to look at that as well. But I think Again, we don't see any negative effects, but I think we, we don't really have the data to say, you know, if you do this, you'll live an extra couple of years because these studies just aren't long enough to do that yet. Did you want to add anything to that, Courtney? Yeah, I'll just re- underscore the uh, study that found um, in rodents, which um, found that at least 40% of the life extending benefits of calorie restriction are in fact due to time restricted eating. What was interesting about that study is that was a lower limit. They were only able to establish that at least 40%, but it could be larger, right? So, um, and in fact, recently, one of the world's longest living men, I I wish I remembered his his first name, was someone who um, ate two meals a day and stopped eating around noon. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, And it's, we've often looked at dietary quality and longevity, uh, but no one's really looked at meal timing. Mm-hmm. and longevity. So it'd be super interesting to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the study that I'm involved in will look at some of these molecular mechanisms. So we'll be able to see, uh, you know, what aspects of aging that we're really targeting. So we're going to look at the nine hallmarks of aging. And these includes things like nutrient sensing, telomere length, um, you know, um, uh, senescent cells and things like that. So we should get a pretty complete picture about what aspects of aging, if any, are improved uh, by time restricted eating. And what type what type of eating window are they doing in that study? In this study, we're doing an eight-hour eating window, and the control groups will be counseled to eat over a twelve-hour mm-hmm. or longer period. And we're comparing it versus twenty-five percent CR. So the original calorie restriction studies in humans, where they targeted twenty-five percent CR. In reality, uh, they only achieved about 12.5% CR over a two-year period, right? So, and, and let me just say, the team that did these studies were phenomenal. I mean, these participants got so much counseling. It just shows you how hard it is to stick with calorie restriction in the long term. Mm-hmm. So if we find that time-restricted eating has even some of the benefits of calorie restriction for slowing the aging process, I think that will be huge, mm-hmm. right? Because our hypothesis is it's way easier to do, um, you know, time-restricted eating as opposed to calorie restriction. One thing that we haven't spoken about, and and I think you've made it clear that 
broadly speaking, time-restricted eating appears to be a very safe intervention. I'd like to speak about adverse events. And for years I've heard uh, that women in particular are underrepresented in, in a lot of these studies. I was actually pleased to see, I think, the Corey Rinder study and the one in China had a very large percentage of women in them. So that was that was good to mm-hmm. see. But is there enough information out there around narrowing the eating window with regards to it being safe uh, for women of childbearing age, um, women during nursing, during menopause, etc.? No. <laughs> um, usually women who are pregnant think they will become pregnant or breastfeeding or excluded from these trials because it hadn't been studied yet and they're considered a vulnerable population. Um Women who have been postmenopausal and menopause and pre have been included, but not intentionally and in a kind of controlled manner. It's one of the things that I think does need to be looked at. Um, there are some studies in PCOS that are starting to look at kind of what, and like Courtney mentioned as well, that are starting to look at some of the benefits of that. Um, from an extremely anecdotal take with a handful of salt, I had been on time restricted eating for years and I continued it while I was pregnant and breastfeeding and had no problems with that. Um, but I was, it was at a 10 hour window. Um, it wasn't anything extreme. Um, but I had already been on it for quite some time. I didn't start that when I was pregnant or breastfeeding. So I think that's another thing to consider. Um, but yeah, I think that's definitely a field that needs to be understood more. I mean, we also don't know how it affects children or if children should be on it. They have very different growth needs. Um, but you know, sometimes you look at when you're children eat and you go, okay, well, she actually is on a 10 hour eating window. I never thought about it that way, but she eats when she wakes up and you know what? She sleeps for like 12 hours at night. So as long as she's not eating like the second before she goes to bed, so she's eating around 10 or 11 hours. And this was never thought of as I'm restricting her eating window by any means, but she sleeps a lot. So that's kind of what it ends up to be. Um, So I think there needs to be more done there. And I think even just understanding even more observational studies being enabled would be very helpful because really the timing of when people eat really isn't well studied. Um, Mm. And it's very hard to do because it's something that we forget. If you ask me when you eat, like even if you're trying to remember, it's very hard to remember every little thing that you had. Um, And so until we have a better idea of when everyone eats, um, it makes it hard to say what, what will be safe. And and again, I think we really have to move Mm. to much larger populations um, to answer this question. You raise an interesting point there around terminology and I understand why time-restricted eating is used. But in many ways, if the norm is a kind of extended eating, that's kind of like time-extended eating and time-restricted eating could be NEW, a normal eating window in some ways. I like that normal eating window. That's a nice way to think about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think we really kind of you know, we went from having, you know, eating when you were active and when it was light out to probably eating to then like three meals a day. And now we really have very poor meal structure within the US, at least if you look at NHANES data, which is a large trial that tracks thousands of people over decades. um, You see that it goes from having mainly three meals a day to going down to having more snacks and the structure changes. Um, and some people don't even really eat meals. They're mainly snacking all day. I mean, it's really changed. Um, and then you see all these advertisements for like happy hour, you know, 
after late night men- menus where it's like after midnight, it's this discount. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? <laughs> this is horrible. Um, and so I think, you know, we're really eating at these kind of insane times. It's like, what if you like went into a room that was like natural sunlight at midnight, that would be crazy. Right. But we're doing that to our bodies with food all the time now. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a huge part of how we interact. You know, like if you're going out for a night with friends and you're having drinks, you're probably eating and this can go into the wee hours of the morning. Um, and so I think it's just this very bizarre eating pattern and really caloric intake pattern that we have developed, um, that our bodies really aren't built for. Do we know much about how time-restricted eating can affect lean muscle? I'm thinking about people who uh, are perhaps training, working out. It could be athletes. It really could just be anyone who's thinking about healthy aging and wanting to maintain some lean muscle mass. Is there any sort of deleterious effect of narrowing the eating window in terms of losing some of that lean body mass? Yeah, so it's interesting. There have been about half a dozen studies in looking at resistance training in particular. They're not particularly large studies, but by and large, these studies find no negative or positive effect on strength gains, which I think is really important, or on lean mass. Now, there are a couple of weight loss studies that did find a decrease in lean mass. I don't know how to explain that. Um, it could be due to the fact that people... Sometimes people, when you prescribe time-restricted eating, they may eat less protein. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. The low at all paper is probably the most famous study that found a decrease in lean mass. But I will tell you the amount of the decrease in lean mass is is far below the threshold that's clinically significant, right? This could even honestly be due to just fluctuations in water weight, right? So um, the best evidence we have in resistance-trained individuals suggests no positive or negative effects on lean mass or strength. I'm interested in, in Emily, you mentioned there you do a 10-hour eating window and I'm putting you both on the spot here so feel free to decline uh, answering your, your personal uh, eating window schedule. But I'm interested in do you, do you feel like a 10-hour eating window from say 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. is – the kind of most popular time-restricted eating window that still allows people to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, albeit a little bit of an earlier dinner? I think actually nine to seven is more popular, at least in the populations that we've worked with. That seems to be the the most common one. Personally, I am shifted slightly later. Right now I'm a a 10 to eight. I used to be a nine to seven. Um, And the reason I shifted was because my only chance to work out is after I put my daughter to bed. And so I have to eat dinner after that. And that's like the earliest I can do. And, And realistically, I eat a little bit later now because of that. And so I think you have to kind of balance what you can, right? Like there might be times where, okay, now I'm on a 10 and a half hour. It's like, okay, that's not so bad. You know, like I'm not doing a 14. Um, but I, I think it comes back to what you can stick to and, and what your schedule allows for. It should be something realistic because, again, this is not some diet where you're going to push yourself really hard for six months and do something extreme. This should just be part of what your lifestyle is, and that can look different at different times of your life. Um, and I think as long as you kind of adjust it slowly and make it something realistic and do the best you can, you'll still see a good amount of the benefits. Yeah, and so I've been doing time-restricted eating since uh, 2010. So, um, gosh, 12 years. I'll say the last two years I haven't done it very much because I have a daughter. I took a different approach from Emily. So I, 
most of the time I've been using a six to eight hour window and just flexing it depending on what I can do because I'm in a lot of meetings each day. So I just couldn't necessarily flex it around my schedule. And I would normally start at 8 a.m. in the morning and then finish between two to four, which I know sounds pretty extreme, but I really liked it. I definitely felt some of the mood benefits. Um, the way I've heard some people describe it is this feeling of peace or serenity. Um, and I definitely felt that. I tried a five-hour window. I went down as low as a five-hour window. I think I might have shared this with Sachin at one point when I ran into him in a meeting. I didn't like a five-hour window because I felt these huge swings in blood sugar from eating it over that short of a period. So I didn't like longer than that. With 10 hours for me, I don't quite feel as many benefits, but that's approximately where I am now. Mm -hmm. But I'm gonna I'm planning to get my window back down. Um, and unlike Emily, I was... I perhaps was maybe more nervous about doing time-restricted eating during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So I went off it altogether because I just didn't want to experiment. Um, and I just wanted to be cautious. Uh, just because there was sufficient data in animal studies that starting time-restricted eating during the juvenile period or in adolescence um, did have negative effects on growth. So I just wanted to have a clean conscious, um, you know, on that. So I went off it for that time period. Have, have any studies looked at cognitive performance? Speaking anecdotally, I feel a bit conflicted here because I'm hearing what you say about the early time-restricted eating window having some advantages. Mm -hmm. But I do a lot of work in the mornings. Up, you know, I try and get a lot mm -hmm. of my more cognitive demanding stuff done earlier and I feel like I do that better in a fasted state. And I'm wondering if... Uh, if, if anyone has looked at that as to whether the, the time in which you start eating affects your cognitive ability. I don't think anyone's looked at the phase of eating and cognitive ability. Courtney, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that there has been a fair amount of literature on just the circadian patterns of cognitive ability and even of emotion and, and um, personality type. So like certain people are very good at editing uh, late at night. Like it, it seems to be a skill that tends to go there and, and you do have different moods at different times of day. And so um, people do have like kind of clarity of thought at, at specific times of day. And that, that is, is something you can do. In fact, even if you try to give yourself a set of math problems, like, fairly simple addition or multiplication that is not so hard that it's impossible, but hard enough where you have to actually think you'll be better at it at different times of day. And so I think there is definitely a circadian component to that. Um, I mean, the brain only runs on sugar, so I'm guessing you need something there, but potentially you're breaking down a, a good amount of that. Um, and some people will say they can't do anything until they've had something to eat. So um, I'm not quite, quite sure about um eating before or after having to do some serious thinking. I don't know, Courtney, do you know any other studies that follow that? I know of what's called a cohort study where they just follow people over time. It was a cohort study in elderly Italian adults. And they did find, I think, that individuals who practice time-restricted eating had better cognitive function, right? But you can't establish oh, yes. cause and effect. Mm -hmm. um, and then related to cognitive function in our four day study of early time restricted eating, we did find an increase in BDNF uh, levels mm. in our trial in the evening and BDNF for those who don't know, actually promotes the survival of certain brain cells called neurons. Um, so we were at least able to demonstrate in humans that some of, you know, the factors protective of your cognitive health seem to be activated by mm -hmm. time restricted eating. Super interesting. Yeah. The one other thing I'd say as far as emotional, like kind of control, 
circadian, chronic circadian disruption is known to be directly tied to any affective disorder, bipolar, major depression, to the extent that there are some circadian groups that do these really intensive, like months long trials where they might actively circadian desynchronize you. And in those trials, if you or any of your, any member of your family has been diagnosed with depression or bipolar, they will not admit you into the trial because it's so likely to trigger an episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we know that circadian disruption causes those problems. And I think it's a matter of time until we get a better understanding on how food alone, opposed to maybe food as well as light schedules or different mm -hmm. things like that, might be able to be optimized to hopefully help those that are going through depression or to potentially prevent that, especially when you're pairing it with like seasonal depressive disorder, where you do see these changes in depressive symptoms based off of changes in light or lack thereof, um, whether food timing regularity could help that as mm -hmm. well. Cool. Well, I'll be interested to hear from folks listening, perhaps in the YouTube comments, as to whether they feel cognitively sharper in a fed or a fasted <laughs> state. I'm sure I'm probably an an outlier there. Uh, you you mentioned training, and that that brings me to another question that I get quite a bit. Do you think there would be any difference in doing your training in the fasted state let's say for example i am doing the uh the kind of 9 a.m to 7 p.m type eating window would i be better be better doing my training before 9 a.m before i start eating or during the fed state i'm glad you asked this question so the nih has signaled they want to fund this type of research uh so they just did a workshop and i, I participated in it so they actually some really provocative evidence there that suggests that the time of day that you exercise matters as well as the time of day that you eat. So there have been a couple suggestive studies, and some of these were what we call post-hoc analyses, which means you do the study, you know, you find people lose weight, and you go back and you say, okay, what are the factors that predict whether people lose weight? So a couple of these studies have found that people who exercise before breakfast, so in the fastest state, lose more weight. Um, and there have been also some short-term studies that have looked at food intake, how, you know, so how much someone eats, if they exercise before or after breakfast, they've been able to show that, you know, at least acutely people tend to eat less and or their reductions in appetite hormones such as ghrelin. Um, that said, conversely, there's also data uh, suggesting that for individuals with type 2 diabetes, they get a much better benefit for their metabolism when they exercise in the afternoon. So, I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but it may in part be due to the fact that they have a different optimal time of day for their circadian rhythms. And we know that, for instance, because usually their best blood sugar controls a little later in the day, unlike mm -hmm. the average person without type 2 diabetes where, the, you know, your blood sugar control is better earlier in the day. And so for them, they don't seem to get as much benefit if they're exercising in the morning and they get a lot more benefit if they exercise in the afternoon. So it's super fascinating because mm -hmm. no one can quite yet reconcile these different results. But nonetheless, they suggest there's an optimal time of day mm. for exercise and it may depend on the person what that optimal time of day is. Yeah, just another yeah, reminder I, I that these these protocols are going to, to come down to who you are in many cases. Yeah. Absolutely. This goes into precision medicine and I think it's also what you're trying to achieve um, is a big part of when you would exercise because there are circadian patterns to muscle strength, your heart rate is going to be changing differently throughout the day. Your blood pressure is different throughout the day. So if you're trying to do your absolute best, you're going to be better in the afternoon. But if you're trying to lose weight, like right. you said, morning might be better. So depending on what you're trying to do uh, really matters on when you should work out. And there, like Courtney said, there's a lot of uh, research just starting up in this field. I think it'll be 
we'll be seeing a lot more in the next few years. Yeah, and I think one of the big questions we have at the moment that we don't even know is, does the time of day, like relative to your circadian rhythm matter more, or is it training in the postprandial versus fasting state? Mm -hmm. So the even very fundamental questions like that that we don't know the answer to yet. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I have a couple of other little questions as we approach the end of this conversation. What breaks the fast? If if I wake up at seven, but my eating window is going to start at nine a.m., based on Emily's advice, uh, if I have a, a coffee, and let's just say that's a double espresso. There's no milk or cream or anything added to it. Is that coffee going to open up my eating window? So we've generally said, yeah, we've generally said no. There is debate in the field, right? So not everyone agrees on this. So the, the approach we have taken is if there are any calories in it, it breaks your fast. Obviously, if it's like two calories, yeah, probably not, right? But if you start talking about 50 calories, yes, um, absolutely, right? So human bloodstream contains about 10 to 20 calories at a time, depending on your body weight. So that kind of gives you a sense of the scale. Um, that said, there's also some data that caffeine can uh, activate cyclic AMP and may affect your uh, metabolism. And I'll let Emily speak mm. to that because I think you all might have a different uh, full philosophy or best guess on this. Yeah, uh, not that different. I think um, when yeah. we started this in humans, um, yeah. we went off of what we knew in rodents, which they were only on water. And we really didn't know if caffeine or artificial sweeteners or other things like that would have an effect. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's been any study to do a full time restricted eating plus coffee in the morning or <laughs> plus tea or plus this to say it does or doesn't have an effect. Um, like Courtney said, um, caffeine can trigger some things. Um, cyclic AMP also feeds into the circadian clock. It can also shift things that way. Um, it changes your arousal system, which can also have effects on behavior, which could indirectly shifts clocks. There's also been um, some studies shown that if you have caffeine before a meal, you can have a higher glucose spike in response mm -hmm. to your first meal. Um, in our studies, we have not allowed coffee um, or anything other than water. We've allowed like a slice of lemon in water or an herbal tea if necessary. We've, we've tried to kind of stay purist merely because we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think more would need to be known there. The one exception we had to that was in a, a study um, that we're just finishing <laughs> the revision on um, was in firefighters who were 24 hour shifts. And we did allow them to have coffee outside of their window if they needed to just for safety concerns, because they're working 24 hour shifts multiple days in a row. So if they felt like they needed coffee, we would let them have that. That being said, most of them decrease coffee anyway, but um, we didn't, we tend to not, but I think the, the data is still out. But even in the study, many studies have allowed coffee, like a black coffee, and they still see benefits. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just in terms of uh, a kind of takeaway for the person listening, safest option to include tea, coffee, stevia, any kind of low calorie thing within the eating window, it might be okay outside, but you think that we need a little bit more research? That's, that's my view on it. I think if you need your black cup of coffee, that's not the worst thing. But if you can keep it in your eating window, I would, I would try to do so. And Courtney, do you have a slightly different view on that? No, I just don't think we have enough data. Okay. Um, and we've just been more generous in my studies um, and let people drink coffee at any time of day. Yeah. And you mentioned shift workers and 
I, I know this could take us down a rabbit hole, but Emily, you and I spoke about this <laughs> yeah. previously. Uh, Courtney, you mentioned earlier that I think I think you mentioned that shift work is associated with chronic diseases. Clearly, shift workers are, are very, very important people. We rely on them in very uh, many parts of our society. I'm wondering, since our last conversation, Emily, which was probably a couple of years ago now, has there been any further research looking at shift workers? What uh, types of protocols or strategies that people can perhaps lean into from a meal timing point of view that may help them? nurture their circadian rhythms despite these kind of more uh, irregular working hours? Yeah, so our, our paper in, in shift and uh, 24-hour firefighters is, is coming out uh, soon. Um, but there is really feasibility. Um, it was the main outcome, but also looking at other health outcomes. Um, and we do see that it's feasible. We didn't see any adverse side effects, so they didn't have hunger problems or anything like that, which was nice to see. But in all fairness, 24-hour shift work is the easiest shift work to do a time-restricted eating regimen on because their night is still their night. They're able to try to sleep at night. They get woken up many times, and it's not the same quality of sleep, but they're still awake during the day always, which is very different than, say, a night shift schedule where you're trying to sleep during the day and you're um, eating at night um, and you're awake at night. Um, And I think there's a lot of debate there, and I'm very excited where that field is going. There's some really exciting work from Australia um, coming out, actually looking at different macronutrients throughout the night. So there were some cool studies done where they either gave um, like biphasic eating. So you ate kind of twice a day, maybe about 12 hours apart, and you didn't eat across the night at all. And you'd have better glucose regulation in the morning than if you had a full meal in the middle of the night. And the compromise in between where they gave them half that meal, they had like half the improvement. Um, And so I think one of the things shifting there is saying, okay, well, maybe it's not a good idea to have a large bowl of pasta in the middle of the night as your meal when you're on a night shift, but maybe switching to lean fats, higher protein, lower carb might be able Mm -hmm. to help that. But that is such a young field um, and a lot more needs to be done there to see how we can say, okay, one, is it possible to stick to something like time restricted during your day? when you are active during the day for something like a 24 hour uh, shift worker. And then, you know, it's going to be different for every other shift. And there's so many different types of shift work. A nurse is going to be different than a news anchor is going to be different, you know, like all these different things and some of them move. And so I think that's where the field is going. And I think controlling types of foods that you eat is going to be the compromise to say, what can we do to mediate Mm. the risks and mediate the damage as much as we can. And sometimes that's going to be time restricted eating and sometimes that's going to have to go down more into the types of foods that you're eating. Sure. What would you do if if you all of a sudden had to work 10 p.m. to 6 a.m.? That was your regular kind of shift overnight. And so you were up and awake while it was dark and you would come home after, your, after you clock off at 6 a.m. and perhaps go to bed at 8 a.m. How would you set up your meals? Yeah, that's, that's rough. Um, and this is very anecdotal because we don't have a good answer for this. And some rodent trials have tried and it, it, it's mixed. Um, I think I would, and the, one of the big problems is because you switch back and forth between being awake mm-hmm. during the day and being awake at night. And that's one of the really big problems there. Um, and humans who do try to stick to always being awake at night, that doesn't usually work. So you're switching back and forth. One idea is to try a biphasic eating where maybe I eat at eight and eight 
every day. And it's just, it doesn't matter if it's daytime or nighttime. And then maybe on my days off, I could also eat during the daytime when I'm active. Um, and I'd probably have, if I'm really hungry while I'm working, I'd have like some nuts, mm-hmm. like a handful of like almonds or something like that. That's really not going to trigger any type of glycemic response. Um, the other option would be to try to stick to some kind of, you know, 10 hour eating during the day, but I don't think that makes sense. Cause then you're not going to get enough, like you're going to be awake for too long and before you get to eat again. So I think if I had my first go, I would probably try a biphasic, mm-hmm. but that is, um, you really, I think have to test it out and see what works for you and then adjust and, the data just really isn't there to say what is best. And it, there are such hard trials to run and there's so many different types of shift work um, that it's something that I'm very interested in. And I think we really do need to do. I mean, I completely agree with you. The shift work population are key. I mean, we even titled our study, the healthy heroes study mm-hmm. because they are the heroes of our society. Um, and so I think finding ways to help them mediate the disruption to their circadian system is huge Um, and so I really want to go down that path, but there's, there's still a lot to know before I can say, do this, it'll work. We just don't know yet. Let let me add two things on top of that. So Frank Shear's lab just came out recently with a study where they took individuals and had them kind of simulate doing night shift work. And they, what they ended up testing was if you're doing night shift work, is it better to eat during your shift in the middle of the night? Or is it better to eat during the daytime? And in that study, they actually found it was better for their glycemic control to actually eat during the daytime than Mm -hmm. on their shift. Now, the big caveat for these studies is these were not individuals who habitually did shift work. And we do know from short-term studies of shift work that we do see adaptation over time, right? So this may not generalize to people who chronically do shift work. Again, distinction between acute and Mm -hmm. chronic. But I will say I do know right now there is a group, Josie Brossard's group um, at UC Boulder, I believe, is um, studying whether time-restricted eating can be a countermeasure. So in other words, can it kind of lessen the side effects of night shift work? Okay, very cool. Well, I might get that information from you and and put some links to whatever's available at this point in, in time. Uh, but I think that's useful information for the moment. Perhaps a, a biphasic eating pattern is worth trying and it seems like maybe during overnight if you're awake, glycemic control might not be the best. So what I'm hearing from you is foods that are uh, high-quality protein source and, and providing more fats may be a better option but much more data needed to be kind of definitive and and have sort of more uh, specific protocols for shift workers. Yeah. (laughs) Before we round this out, we have spoken mostly here about the timing of meals. We spoke a little bit about uh, having more of your calories in the first half of the day and potential benefits there. And we spoke a little bit about quality but we didn't really go into it and and I know that Volta Longo places great emphasis on protein and there's a large debate out there around protein restriction and sometimes that comes into this conversation when we're talking about calorie restriction uh, we're talking about fasting and particularly longevity trying to tease out, well, what's responsible for longevity? Is it the restriction of calories? Is it the fasting period or is it protein restriction? What are your thoughts on, on protein? 
Yeah, so there were some really elegant studies done over a decade ago where they were able to trace, at least in fruit flies, that the benefits of calorie restriction were in fact due to protein restriction, not to the restriction of carbohydrates or fats or overall energy intake. So there's actually been a ton of work looking, for instance, at methionine restriction, which is one of the sulfurous amino acids. And generally, these studies find up to about 40% extension of lifespan. Um, Interestingly, the data in humans suggests that at least when you look at it at an epidemiologic level, which means you're not doing a clinical trial, you're just following people over time and saying, okay, what habits tend to correspond with, you know, better health. Um, Walter Longo had done one of these epidemiologic studies and found that I think prior to age, I think it was 60 or 65, protein restrictions seemed to be beneficial. But after that age, it actually seemed to be detrimental. So, for instance, I think they saw several fold increase in the risk of cancer and diabetes with greater protein intake uh, before the ages of 65. But then they saw, I think, an adverse relationship with health after the age of 65. I don't remember exactly what they looked at, uh, but I thought that was super Mm -hmm. interesting. And part of that may be traced to the fact that in our later years, we absorb less protein. Mm -hmm. So protein restriction may be counterproductive. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that, I think, Courtney. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Manugian, Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a very clarifying conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Is there anything that you feel we've missed given the, the kind of recent hype in the media, uh, both mainstream and social media around TRE? Is there anything else that you wanted to add that perhaps we didn't get to? No, I think we covered a ton of ground. I mean, this was a fun conversation, covered everything from cancer to aging, type 2 diabetes, weight loss, and cognition. So uh, it's a really great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the take-home really is, you know, TRE really isn't supposed to be a competitor for, or a weight goes way beyond caloric restriction or some magic weight loss. I think it's been shown in sub-studies to have moderate weight loss without intending to or changing other things. I think it could be part of a a healthy lifestyle, but, um, you know, the data is just coming out and there's a lot of randomized control trials going on right now. And I think we're, you know, in the next few years, we're really going to see more of what time-restricted eating really does and get more into the mechanism of it and its applicability to wider populations. Great. And if, if folks listening would like to get in touch with you or keep in track with your future work, Where's the, the best place to send them? Uh, you could reach me on Twitter at, at Emily Manugian, or uh, you can email me at emanugian at sulk.edu. Um, those are probably the best ways to reach me. Yeah, and you can find my research on PubMed or just search for my last name. <laughs> yeah. And then you can reach me via my email address, which is uh, C. P-E-T-E-R-S-O at uav.edu. Okay. All will be in the show notes. Brilliant. Thank you very much uh, and please do enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. There we go, friends. I hope this was an informative listen for you on all things time-restricted eating. Given that this episode was quite science-intensive, I thought it would be a good idea to give you a bit of a summary or at least my biggest takeaways from this episode and the literature on time-restricted eating. Here's where I've landed. If you are wanting to lose weight, time-restricted eating is certainly a tool that you could try. With that said, it's important to understand it's not magic. By giving you less hours to eat, the idea is that you'll consume less calories over the day than you would if you ate over your typical eating window. It's essentially an alternative to tracking calories that may work for some people, particularly those who don't want to track calories. 
Beyond weight loss, any extra benefits of time-restricted eating seem to depend on two main things. Firstly, your baseline eating window, and secondly, your baseline metabolic health. For example, if you have impaired blood glucose control, perhaps you have pre-diabetes, and currently eat over 15 hours a day, you are more likely to benefit than someone who currently eats over 12 hours a day and has normal blood glucose control. If you do want to practice time-restricted eating, early time-restricted eating seems to be more effective with your eating window starting within the first few hours of waking. An example of this could be 8am to 6pm or 9am to 7pm, the latter being what Dr. Emily Manoogian said she believes people have the easiest time integrating into their lifestyle. Ideally, within this eating window, you would position more calories in the early to mid part of the day, particularly if weight loss is a goal. If someone is doing shift work overnight, biphasic eating with meals at say 7pm and 7am or 8pm and 8am could be helpful, but again, more research is needed in larger groups of people with different baseline eating windows and baseline health to develop more specific protocols. Beyond weight loss and metabolic health, we also spoke about longevity and cancer treatment today. Just how effective time-restricted eating may or may not be for these aspects of health is yet to be fully established. Personally, I'm not getting too carried away here and would like to see a little bit more data, particularly with cancer. Larger groups of patients with various types of cancer showing that time-restricted eating is safe and improves one's prognosis, improvements in actual health outcomes. Hopefully, all of that makes sense. As always, thank you very much for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on the YouTube videos or a review on the Apple or Spotify podcast app. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests that you'd like to see on the show, please leave those in the comment section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products that we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.